0: Tonight's episode is an experiment, one we hope you'll enjoy. So gather the kids, the dog, grandma, and lock them in another room and sit back and enjoy.
1: Look, all I need is one case, one big case. And with you, you're a celebrity, oh, with your name and reputation, I could get that case. Then we both have what we want. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to another episode of the i double podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we've returned to television.
2: Yes, we have, and this is one that I didn't know I knew about. This is one of those, like, oh, goodness, this is a linchpin for a lot of things I like, isn't it? And I double-checked through the internet and said, oh, dang. Okay, then. So I'm really excited to get to talk to you about this one because it is it is a delightfully unknown but known thing to me in that sense.
1: And the reason we, we hit upon this as a topic for the IWMP is that we were watching a documentary about a movie, and they started talking about where the star of this movie came from. And then we realized, you hadn't seen where this movie star came from. We need to fix that. Yeah, I've, I've only known him in
2: his modern interpretation, which is a very different kind of role. And this was kind of the, the last hurrah of him in the role he used to be known for. And I'm excited to see that because it's not how I know him. I also don't know him with that much hair, but that's a different thing.
1: <laughs> so enough obf- obfuscation. We're going to talk about the TV series Moonlighting. Oh,
2: boy. Starring Sybil Shepherd
1: and Bruce Willis. Starting in 1985 and running for five or six seasons, I believe.
2: Uh, five. Okay. Five seasons, 66 episodes, 67, if you look at syndication, because they did that split the pilot thing. Right. That's right.
1: And it's, it's very much a product of its time and all that that implies. And we'll talk oh, about oh, that, wow. I'm sure. It is, it is the most 80s thing ever created, I think. It is is verging on that. And we will talk about the style later, but I do have to warn anybody up front who might listen to this and want to go watch the show, if you have any allergy to shoulder pads, (laughs) please keep your distance from this TV show. Oh, goodness.
2: Well, shoulder pads are large enough they will help you keep your distance from it. (laughs) That's true. Buffer you from approaching.
1: And it... um, uh, So you're right. Sybil Shepard, Bruce Willis, created uh, by... um, Glenn Gordon Karen, who had previously worked on other TV shows, some of which we will, will certainly be talking about in the future.
2: Okay. I will be careful not to spoil myself on his list.
1: First real creation, and one probably he is best known for. Which is amazing
2: because the name is not what I ever hear come up. The reference to the characters, the setup, the style are the things I hear re- I hear like notes to elsewhere. But it's never the name of the show. I didn't know what it was called until we sat down, and I started going, oh, wait, this is the thing that that's from. Oh. oh, this is what that's from. No one ever states Moonlighting. I just, it's this thing
1: that's known. It's like the assumed constant. So you are aware of this 80s TV show, but you hadn't known it by name? Yes, and I was aware of it in parts,
2: and then I learned that all of it is in this one show. I'd seen clips of from this show used online, of the receptionist, of some of the fights, of the Shakespeare episode used out of context <laughs> online, as this touchstone you go to, and I'd never known this was one thing, and I'd never known it was contained everything like I, that I knew know about it now, so.
1: That's funny, and that's definitely a, a sign of the fact that our your your experience of the internet and mine are not perfect circles on that Venn diagram. Because I can't say that's anything I've really come across. I am in, and it's interesting to know that it's out there. I am in this corner
2: that loves to find media and then use it for their reference. And so there is something of the I found this perfect gif from the thing no one else has watched, and that's part of why I love doing this because it is a source of those for me. At ver- or at very least, a source of context. But I I follow an entire group of people who are video reviewers. They each run their own stuff on it. And uh, those folks on the Frostbite are all about throwing different items at each other. So it's it can be fun at times.
1: Well, it's nice to have been able to provide you with some of the the context for these bits that you have seen and this kind of general awareness you've got. Because in addition to being you know, so very much an artifact of, of when it was made, it it was groundbreaking in a number of ways. In some ways, it was a very conscious, very intentional reference back to a prior style of storytelling. And yet once it got comfortable with that, it started experimenting and doing a lot of strange and interesting things. it was very much a reach back to maybe even 30s, but definitely 40s and 50s filmmaking. Uh, Howard Hawks is the reference that the uh, writers of this and the creators of this uh, mention as an inspiration. That kind of, there's a romance, but it's not just a romance story. It's filled with smart people, quick, very clever, witty banter.
2: The the fact that everything I read referenced... Uh bringing up Baby and His Gal Friday in the the things that they watched to get ready and to write this show, it got me excited because I love those movies. Honestly, I've gotta probably move up my uh my yearly watching of His Gal Friday.
1: <laughs> yeah, those are some of the kind of movies that led to this podcast with us, yeah, you know, Mrs. Darling wife and I showing you things that we liked from our youth and, and before. Uh and and enjoying the fact that you got to experience them and getting your take on them. Oh, yeah. That definitely included things like bringing up Baby in the front page and uh, His Gal Friday. And those are just fun movies. So something that can keep
2: that same sort of energy of two smart people who are smart in different circles running into each other and this... this grinding of gears against them as they try to go in opposite directions at times. But they still get the thing done because they can, once they drop a little of facade, trust each other to do the best they can in their circle. That I like a lot. And there's some things it it actually didn't follow through with every bit of setup of that that I was thinking when we first started watching. But it got into a rhythm and was able to maintain something energetically through the entire bits of the show we watched in such a way that it was able to experiment. A show that can switch it up for an episode is a show that has faith that next week you'll come back and not have been discouraged by the fact that last week was different.
1: Right. It wasn't afraid to um, to experiment in that way. We've talked about, especially older TV, pre-80s TV, having to rely very much on status quo. And they can't assume that everyone has seen the rest of the episodes, even in this season. So every story has to be self-contained, and everything has to more or less go back to the status quo by the end of each episode. This one kind of turned that around by deciding if every episode has to be able to stand on its own, let's make them all different. Mm -hmm. Let's totally twist that around.
2: And the fact that our our core characters, where She is this much more social, you know, it has the connections, has the the societal contact if she has to, has the the form, but also has somehow a bit more of the temper and the pugilistic side at times (laughs) in the fights. Meanwhile, he's this way more laid-back but manipulative people person in the right way. Can get the things and is not a bad shot and a pretty clever guy in a scrape means that they get to set these two up. They're both very rooted characters that are basic enough to be noted and be understood at a glance once they set up a few lines with them. Right. But they're not shallow. There's depth to how they're played and what they're given, so they have enough energy to run not only in an episode, but episode to episode to episode across a series and play with these. But it's not like you're going to be able, you're going to pick up an episode and not know who these people are. They've got this character personality on their sleeve that you can read fast enough as everything else is going on to keep it on track with them.
1: Right. They are, they're types, but they are not cartoons of those types. And I, I might even argue that in the, at least the first half of the first season, they kind of were cartoons of these types. And yet, once the show got some confidence, once the, the actors and the writers and the directors kind of knew what they had, then they started adding some more of that depth, and it got far more interesting, and it became something that could last five seasons and not kind of burn itself out after one or two. But maybe we should give some setup so we kind of know who these characters are and, and how they got into this situation. This is very typically a, um, two characters from different worlds having to deal with one another and having to interact. Absolutely. So the setup, and this is covered in the, um, in the, the pilot, which was a, a two-hour story. They've, as you mentioned, Ian, they split it up for, for syndication. And we could talk about the status of syndication later or how much we do or do not know about that. Mm-hmm. Madeline Hayes, played by Sybil Shepherd, is apparently an extremely successful model, has had a modeling career since she was 15. She was the Blue Moon Shampoo Girl. That's what most people remember her as. And, of course, she, being a um, famous and highly sought-after model, is living in los angeles and is extremely wealthy
2: as as my mom our producer was able to point out it's very fortunate they had all these actual modeling pictures by from sybil shepherd to use for this character lovely overlap for their set design people there but it works very well and they set that up with mostly a pan shot across a house so
1: right you see uh, for magazine covers that The character Maddie Hayes has been on uh, since she was fifteen. Actually, there things that Sybil Shepherd, you know, photos that Sybil Sybil Shepherd had shot, probably going back to when she was fifteen. And this whole series was really set up and written as a Sybil Shepherd vehicle. Sybil Shepherd had herself been a a a very successful model, and back in nineteen seventy, had her real breakthrough in acting in peter bogdanovich's uh, the last picture show but now it's you know 1985 it's 15 years later she has still done some acting but has not had a didn't sybil shepherd did not have a a meteoric career but this was a network tv show created as a sybil shepherd vehicle and she therefore was was really well cast for this uh so she's uh, madeline hayes a very sybil shepherd like character. And then she finds out she's not wealthy after all, because her accountant and business manager have taken all of her money and left the country. And they've been robbing her blind, and she didn't even know it until her household staff started complaining that their checks were bouncing. Did they ever actually do anything about that? Does that ever come up later? You know, it's so long since I've seen too much of this, but I think maybe it does. Okay. Okay think that's not the last we hear of that. Oh, good. I'll look it, into that. Like, that, that. That was
2: a, a plot point that had... It wasn't just a, a contrivance to drive the, the story to where it wants to be. That seemed like it had legs as a story of its own, so I was hoping there'd be more that we didn't get to see in that case this time.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a loose end, and I think it is a loose end that they do pick up at some point in the five seasons. Oh, good. But now she has no money, certainly not the money to... Finance the lifestyle she's been leading, but she has a whole bunch of odd investments that were not liquid enough for the um, the people who robbed her to to rob. So she had investments in all these little small businesses, including a detective agency, City of Angels Detective Agency. And her, um, uh, Maddie Hayes's attorney and friend is advising her. You need cash right now, so you can't afford to have all these investments out there, especially ones like this detective agency, that are losing money for all three years that it's been operating. Uh, You've got to liquidate these. You've got to fire everybody, sell any assets, reclaim any cash you can from these. Even though it was losing money because it was kind of invested in as a tax write-off, it was supposed to be losing money. So she's going around to find these places and, um, and shut them down, and the first place she goes is City of Angels Detective Agency. And
2: that's where we meet our our other main character. And my goodness, excellent introduction!
1: So we find Bruce Willis playing David Addison. Oh, I, I was talking about the receptionist. Okay, the re- <laughs>
2: <laughs> you are absolutely right. You're right. Uh, uh, she's she's not the main character, but she's a very fun side character of the receptionist who is.
1: I don't. I think i recognize that actress from elsewhere she's one of these character actresses that's been in a bunch of things at least beasley as Miss DePesto, the receptionist and secretary in this uh this place but it's just like the the almost quintessential like
2: bright-eyed and just chipper in some ways but also a little odd in terms of tone
1: yes she's a little bit odd she's bright but not in sync with the world at all times uh, she answers the phone in, in, in lengthy rhymes, which apparently she's making up on the spot. It's not like she has these prepared. Yeah, it changes as it goes. And that's the thing like, that that takes skill. But why here? Why then? We find out that she's an avid mystery reader and loves puzzles. So, yeah, very interesting character. And, and she is a, a, a character who's important throughout the entire series. Mm hmm
2: but i i I was able to throw you for that one, but actually yeah the real the real other main character there is David, played by it just it just throws me to see him in the comedic role here, I'm so
1: used to him being the action star <laughs> David Addison played by Bruce Willis, oh goodness, like
2: see, I am so used to post to to post action movie like. You know, guns and explosion, Bruce Willis, and then so having him as this this lovable goof kind of character or this
1: yeah the the irresponsible wise guy um clever and quick-witted in his way, especially when it comes to fast talking and yet and and the kind of person that everybody around him really should hate but never quite does they always he always have is able to charm them in some way exactly, and the fact that i kind of
2: knew that he had done bits like this before. And you can see it a little in some of his more modern acting, that he has that talent and that skill and that timing, which is so important. So seeing him in that role, I completely get why that's what he started in, because it's got he's got that snappy response. He knows how to move one line to the next to the next and keep a beat going so that the other actor, is able to respond in just enough time but not pause for laughter in terms of the, the, the comments, and is able to say a line that is definitely written before, but like it's a spur of the moment thought off the top of his head. And that is excellently done. So it's great to see him doing this. It just still threw me for like an episode and a half. And I mean by an episode, the two-hour pilot and the half of the next one we watched <laughs> to get this discordant setup in my head, but it was delightful once I was there.
1: And if you watch him in in some of his more recent roles, having seen Moonlighting as kind of context, it seems to me that that same ability to deliver wit with the right timing, and yet in his later roles, it's slowed down a bit. It's not quick, but it's still witty. It conveys someone with that kind of wit, but who is just world-weary. In a really good way that really suits some of his characters, like Frank in Red, and a number of his other um, the, the act more action characters that he's known for. Uh, you can still see a bit uh, of the David Addison sort of delivery, but at a different pace and in a different style. And that kind of style, that witty back and forth, that timing, which is a lot of it is the writing, the 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 a lot of it is the the acting. That's what's going back to Howard Hawks and these classic screwball comedies with the romance between people who can't stand each other that this is all referencing and really pulls from.
2: I'm going to have to rewatch Looper after watching this just because trying to piece together <laughs> Looper Bruce Willis to this is a thing that I'm intrigued to him to do.
1: Yeah, you can kind of, if, if he were tired enough, you could see David Addison delivering the little talk to... Uh, uh, joseph gordon leavitt in the diner
2: oh absolutely in, from Looper. <laughs> absolutely and and there's something about the the david character who would be the type to be if you were to throw him in a sci-fi situation it would be a okay getting out of this now panicking about it later getting out of this now first
1: kind of kind of energy and that's what works so having heard what kind of character david addison is you can probably guess that Maddie Hayes does not succeed in her mission to walk into the agency, tell everybody they're fired, and sell all the assets. Well, very excellently, one of David's first
2: responses is the, when, he, when she says that it's liquidating because of what's happening, and she's like not direct about what's going on, but he's able to pull it out of her of why. But it's immediately, we were set up to lose money. And we were losing money perfectly. If you want us to make money, we can do that. We'll turn it right around. And that's like. Yeah. I am completely aware that what we were was completely fake, but I'm ready to make it real. That's
1: right. You, you will do what you need us to do. You hired us to make to lose money. We lost money. <laughs> oh, we lost money. Hand over fist. <laughs> so. And not it's not just David's. Charm, although that is what kind of plants the seed and what at least slows her down in her quest to shut this place down, the mystery and the story of the pilot also postpones things, gets her involved in solving a mystery with David. And that's how they wind up continuing the detective agency. Now they're partners. And even though I think she's still the one who owns everything and Oh, they've changed the name to Blue Moon Detective Agency to yeah. cash, in, cash in on her um, fame as the Blue Moon Shampoo Girl. They, they change it within one day. Yeah, she comes back the next day, like, to finally fire him or something, and they're already repainting the, the sign on the door.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think they have new business cards by that point, too. It's like, <laughs> where did you get these that fast? But I like that. It, it, it's, it's, that's. A visual thing of the fact that this show's world is definitely like ours, but it's not it's a little bit haste like the characters are, and that's the thing I noticed that there's a lot of bits of this that are i mean it's it's not an unrealistic show, but it's a show that allows its world to play character sometimes the way the characters are played.
1: I would say that it reminds me of certain things done more recently. That were based on graphic novels, yes. meaning that in a very positive way. And I'm thinking about newer things like, well, Leverage. I don't think that was actually um, based on a graphic novel, but its creator has a lot of experience writing them. Um, uh, Stumptown, the Kobe Smolders series, based on a graphic novel, has that. This is the real world, but it's stylized just the right way in in certain respects to make the storytelling flow so much more smoothly.
2: Exactly. And that's kind of where I felt on this. The fact that in I mean, that, that pilot episode was over dramatic, and you can always kind of expect something like that from a pilot. And I'm not going to go into the mystery of what the pilot episode was here. But the fact that a few episodes later, I think, was that a season two episode with the train?
1: No, that was a late season one episode. So you can see how quickly one. they kind of found their feet and realized what they were good at and what was unique about them Mm -hmm. but the fact that you know late
2: season one they can say that a writer rents out a train for 24 hours to do a murder mystery party every year and then that writer winds up dead and it's a locked on a train one of us is the killer story that's a setup that you have to allow a world to give you and it doesn't skip a beat because they've already made this energy Pervasive across the entire world, it's it's that same sort of, of energy, that graphic novel style you were describing, is there enough that you don't flinch when they say that's the thing. It's just, this
1: is the sort of thing that would happen here, and I love that. And you can see that change because that that pilot episode uh, story, not a bad mystery, it was a fairly generic mystery. Yeah. That story could have been used, at least the the mystery behind it. Could have been used in almost any detective series, or to launch a detective series of any different, of, of many many different types, and it involved you know smuggling or finding of old war treasure and things like that. It was, the story itself wasn't unique to Moonlighting's style. By late in that first season, where we have things like the mystery train and such. It's hard to imagine that being done in a different series without being completely revamped and overhauled because the story and the style were connected so much more seamlessly at that point.
2: I, I see what you mean. It would definitely require much more fine-tuning to fit in anything else because it had that, that tone at that
1: point. And, and that continues beyond that first season. Every season had a few episodes that weren't standout the mysteries in them may have been a bit generic and they were carried by the the dynamic interaction of the characters but most of the seasons had at least several episodes that were just very uniquely suited to this series and could not have been part of any other series again because the style and the story are are completely interconnected that's the thing like
2: Watching through this show, I could see almost as each season, because we watched through to part of season three, and we didn't watch every episode, but we watched bits from across the first three. We watched that black and white episode, and that was from, like, season two? Yep. But that right there had to rely on the fact that it had that style. But also, I could feel a little bit more that the style it had in some of these episodes as it went later, it got a little bit more accentuated. Because they'd found that style that they had over the time, and they they let that dr- be a driving force. But it's a good enough style to warrant that. You, you started watching it because it seemed like a fun mystery show, I'm guessing, but it, you could continue it. Because you did get invested in the will-they-won't-they they, between these two characters, and the witty banter, and the slightly, just slightly... Off of the same axis world from what we've got that can allow for some of these little bit, not silly, but a little bit more outlandish at times setups for the mysteries they're solving. And that's fun. And so you're coming back for it, not for the mystery at some point.
1: Yeah, the mysteries were excuses to make the hour of our television. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it
2: was this experimental thing, the black and white episode, which, where it turned it mono. We 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 went to a different... We, we found a, a video of what had been on TV before the actual episode aired, just because it was something that you said was important to see of this intro. <laughs>
1: I'm still thrown by that intro. <laughs> I think I'll drop that in here.
0: Good evening. I'm Orson Welles. Tonight, broadcasting takes a giant leap backward. In this age of living color and stereophonic sound, the television show Moonlighting is daring to be different and share with you a monochromatic, monophonic hour of entertainment. Approximately 12 minutes into this evening's episode, the picture on your television screen will change to black and white. Nothing is wrong with your set. I repeat, nothing is wrong with your set. Tonight's episode is an experiment, one we hope you'll enjoy. So gather the kids, the dog, grandma, and lock them in another room. And sit back and enjoy this very special episode of Moonlighting.
1: I think an argument could be made that this show peaked in its third season. Hmm. Because it got to a point where it went from interestingly stylistic TV detective series to a very heavily stylistic detective series where the style was, was absolutely the reason to watch and it was done so well. And then in later seasons, it started to get pretty self-indulgent. Oh, so I I will, now that we've watched and I, for me, rewatched some of these episodes through season three, I'm going to be interested in watching some of the, uh, the episodes from later seasons to see if I still feel that way. But I remember at the time and, And it was kind of controversial or a big talking point at the time, because at one point, you mentioned, you know, the will they or won't they? It's a little bit of a spoiler for you. Eventually, they do. And that, of course, changes the tone of the series. But by that time, they were already into their their stylistic approach started to get self-indulgent, started to bog things down, if you ask me. Instead of making things more streamlined.
2: You've got to shake it up at some point. And there is other stories you can tell with the... They did! That you can't otherwise. So I guess that leaves some things on the writer's table for you to do in something else. And leaves a whole new variety of options so that you don't retread the same, same ground too often.
1: And it's one thing if you tell a story that has that tension throughout for a long period of time and you end... On a resolution of that tension that is not bad storytelling when you have a resolution of that tension and then you try to keep going for a couple of years that's much more difficult and you've kind of you, you've removed your own storytelling engine. Where do you go from there?
2: Yeah, you need to either have a shorter runway to wrap up everything else and allow for a little bit of that or you need to know you've got enough fuel to make a second trip and know that this is not going to feel like the first trip. But I guess at that point you can't call it moonlighting too. And you'd need to make that sort of distinction. So,
1: or you acknowledge the fact that this is now changed Our, if the stories were driven by this tension, now these people are a couple facing the world together. We've got different stories to tell. Pick up that challenge. That would be really interesting to me. Somebody picking up that challenge and succeeding, but attempting to continue to tell the same kind of story after you've resolved that tension, you know, what's propelling it at that point?
2: How many episodes involve them yelling at each other and going to their separate offices and slamming the door? They make jokes about that. (laughs) Right. The moment they yell at each other and go into one room and slam the door, it's not the same setup. And that's a difference. And I'm, and, and that that that's a, a miniature example of what we're describing here, I guess, of the fact that that tiny change is a big change. So you've got to re, you've got to rewrite for what that is.
1: Right. And and there are other TV shows like Castle, for example, where there are they get themselves into problems trying to figure out some way to keep going after that resolution. Mm-hmm. And, there, and yeah, there's and there's- often it involves with, yeah, they got together. Oh, wait, no, they didn't. We'll split them apart again. Well, that's kind of cheating, and that's not, again, not really good storytelling. But mm-hmm. I'm kind of, I'm getting off on a tangent about episodes we haven't watched, but I just wanted to point out, it's, it's not a flawless TV series, even in the seasons that we've watched, and it has problems continuing and um, sustaining what drove it early on
2: but that kind of but the fact that you can tangent that way says something about the show it's not a episodic mystery story it is not like when we watched columbo or murder she wrote where you came in to see a mystery and they were these these fun little chunks you could watch it's a show that has this this flow and this continuing tension that you just kind of keep munching on you it was very easy to let the next episode play in this show because it had that rhythm and that flow and by the time you're done like ah off of the first one the next one started up and you're going uh ah, and you're back into the action so yeah that's that's a different type of media it's it's i don't know i, I want to call it like a
1: gummy worm compared to popcorn <laughs> You can go one after another, but each one gives you something to chew on. Exactly. And, you know, thinking about it, we talked a bit about how TV was different in the 70s and early, uh, prior to that, and even the early 80s, in that there could be no assumption that anybody watching tonight's episode had seen last week's, let alone anything else in, this, um, in the season. I have a feeling that Moonlighting, Some of the shift that happened with Moonlighting was them discovering or realizing or learning that VCRs by 1985, 6, 7 were pretty widespread. They weren't absolutely universal by then, but they were definitely widespread, especially among the kind of audiences that um, TV network advertisers might have been interested in. So I think that at a certain point, they started to assume a lot of our viewers, and especially the ones that we are most interested in, have seen all of this season. And some of them are recording all of these and going back and watching them more than once to catch all of the dialogue. And I think that can change the storytelling as well. I expect that that's kind of what happened here, because... Even though you can take each episode as an independent standalone, there as you pointed out with the kind of the bingeability of this, it does flow from one episode into another, and even when it's a contrast like the the Big Man on Mulberry Street episode, which was another really turning point for the series oh my goodness there it, a... it gets very serious, has nothing to do with any mystery that they're dealing with as detectives. It's all about their personal lives and how they will real- connect to one another. And, what they do or do not know about one another's history. And then to go from that to their Shakespeare episode, their comedic take on taming of the shrew. W- w- weren't those right next to each other? They, Yeah, that those was... Those were right one after another. They go Right from this really heavy and, and really fascinating Big Man on Mulberry Street, which okay. also included this um, musical dance number uh, choreographed by the choreographer of uh, "Singing in the Rain," which was a Broadway hit at the time, uh, to go right from that it was a very emotional episode as well. To fun with Shakespeare—that uh, uh, shows you how they'll. Oh, that Shakespeare episode is one I'd seen
2: bits of so many places, and to that—that that was a a double dose of whiplash in a in a way that still didn't feel discordant.
1: Yeah. And as standalone as they were, I wonder to what extent there's an assumption or an understanding that, yeah, people watching this fun Shakespeare episode did see last week's really heavy episode, and you, you stayed with us through that. We hope you enjoyed it and got something out of that. Here's something fun to lighten the mood a bit. There was stuff in the pacing of
2: the way this show ran that was giving me starting the next generation
1: flashbacks. Sorry, what was that? You said I. You said something, and I didn't quite understand. It sounded like some kind of crackly static.
2: I understand what you mean. Yeah. You, 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 you it. So, but there, it, it made me think of sci-fi shows. It made me think of you know sci-fi shows with their big VR rooms that could do a silly history episode right after the big fight <laughs> scene. That's what I was like. Well, oh, and it, it I wasn't, like that. It, it wasn't just because you know, a teleporter man was right there. <laughs> that, 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 yeah. that, that was bloody spectacular but not just because he was there
1: yeah the irish guy from uh uh that taming of the Shrew episode i i think i've seen him somewhere else yeah, exactly but it's like yeah. but it, the, the fact that that can be this
2: that's a show those are shows the sci-fi shows are things that have a a world that you then want to watch characters with personalities you know group up and handle a challenge together and this was a a group of Two, sometimes three, maybe four, in certain scenarios, working as a group to solve a challenge, but you were coming here to watch these people work the challenge, it had that same sort of energy, and that allows you to have those dark episode, light episode not, not a constant narrative flow, but a assumption that if you didn't get what you wanted out of this episode, you've got the other ones to go watch kind of styling.
1: And that's a good point. Other TV series that relied on narrative in that way, if they wanted to have some special, this is a flashback to the 1940s episode, or this is a episode, in iambic pentameter, they always were struggling to come up with some excuse. And yeah, Moonlighting uses the dream sequence for as an excuse for some of the stuff it does. Not for the Shakespeare, though. And... Oh, I guess there's kind of an excuse for the Shakespeare, since it's uh, they, like a...
2: They, they take a... they take a nice little sledgehammer to the fourth wall and knock a very clean <laughs> hole in it so they can peer through and wave before they start up.
1: But in the same way that some graphic novels and Japanese anime, they will give you a side story just for the heck of it. And a stylistically different side story we will take our characters and throw them into something completely different just because it'll be fun. Moonlighting is willing to do that in a way that not a whole lot of TV was at the time.
2: Oh, you're ta- you're going to throw anime into here? I will I will talk. There's enough times where I could see the little hashtag shaped like, vein popping out on <laughs> Civil Shepherd's head. Here, I could watch them just suddenly turn this into a beach episode, and I wouldn't have flinched. <laughs> I am okay with this. I know where we're going, and I've tread that path before. Oh yes, I mean, I, I've got I've got a current show that I am watching. Uh, you, you're you watching, too, called uh, Love is War, that has similar tones sometimes <laughs> of this weird cast oh. around you and these two that are back and forth. Yeah, this sort of show is a thing you'll still find, and that's what uh, what we're talking about here.
1: You're right, you're right. And we started watching s- a season two of that, like, in the middle of the week when we were watching a bunch of episodes of Moonlighting. And oh, yeah. It does fit very
2: well. It does fit way too well.
1: Although... I don't know. David Addison is at least as much like the pink-haired best friend as uh, as any of the other characters. <laughs> oh, he is. Yeah, I hadn't considered. Yeah, that. He's got the brains of the president with the uh, more of the, the the style and carefree attitude of the pink-haired best friend.
2: <laughs> uh, now I'm just imagining Bruce Willis with pink hair.
1: Uh, first, you got to imagine Bruce Willis with hair. Thank you. <laughs> which is increasingly difficult. And that's funny, that's something that comes up in the, um, throughout this series even. Early on in this series, I think that Bruce Willis, his hair was already beginning to leave him uh, when they started making this series. And him being the leading man in a romantic TV show, they were doing a whole lot of work, I think, to give him a full head of hair on camera in the first season or so. And I do recall that several times as the series goes on in later seasons, either a character or, or in some ways it's kind of breaking the fourth wall. Somebody asks him, what happened to your hair? Because there's a whole lot less of it by season two, let alone three, than there was in the first few episodes of season one.
2: Oh, goodness.
1: None of I don't believe it ever turned pink. It just receded. But it suits him. He still looked good. He still
2: looked good. He was still able to pull it all off. And in fact, that just, that kept the character from seeming artificial in a way. Go him. It's an interesting thing. The, the fact yeah. that they do allow their characters to, you know, change outfits and grow and change look and style. Uh, later seasons, uh, receptionist, so much more fashionable outfits than we see her early on. Yes. There is there is a there is a progression of character growth visually shown as much as it is character shown.
1: Right. She remained kind of quirky while being a little bit less ditzy as time went on, and I, I think that worked very well.
2: Uh, a little bit, oh no, everyone likes Luna Lovegood. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to make an odd reference. The Luna Lovegood of the Blue Moon Detective Agency. You're absolutely right. So we could talk about a lot of of different storylines and things but like we said that's not really why anybody's watching this it really is about the characters it really is about that that uh dynamic and they do capture that kind of Howard Hawks feel for for character and dialogue that they were going for oh yeah they
2: they they are able to capture that in a way that I've seen so many things try and fail to and that is impressive that they are able to to grab that energy and hold on to it for as long as they did.
1: Well, I think that may bring us to our final questions. I think so. Well, this being a TV series, first question is going to be binge or no binge. I'm going to say binge, although that's tricky. Yeah. I, I would agree. Binge. Finding this to binge can be difficult. I don't know exactly what's going on, but this appears to be in some kind of rights limbo. Uh Uh-huh. It was available on VHS, of course, back in the day. It was available at some point for some time on DVD, a season at a time, but it's not in print. It's not on any subscription streaming services. I suspect that a search of the, the Great Wide Internet will return places where you can watch episodes of this but some it's almost as if someone is intentionally keeping this from being out there whether it is um just because there's arguments about the rights whether someone involved doesn't want it out there because they don't like it for some reason i don't know but it's weird that something this i guess i could say important something that this significant is not uh, available for any kind of legitimate purchase. I'm amazed because it's an ABC
2: production, which means I would have expected it to pop up as one of the things in the backlog that shows up on Disney now, but it hasn't yet. And of all of the companies that can usually push things through rights limbos, it would be Disney. So that implies that wherever it is, it's stuck pretty
1: well. Now, contracts were written differently in production in those days. Was it... um, was streaming or even home video anticipated in the same way that it would be today and maybe Disney doesn't have those rights. Maybe it has something to do. I won't go into details, but there in in relatively recent years there have been some controversies around the creator of this series. Ah, uh. um and you know, you can find details about that on online online for anybody who's interested. But maybe that has something to do with it. I again would be surprised but um it's it's it is bewildering kind of wonder what's going on but um maybe it'll become available for streaming at some point maybe it'll be become become available for purchase but um if you can find it i would i would say it's worth seeking out and if you can find it it's worth binging
2: we when we say binge when we say to watch something we usually want to be able to give you a place to go so asking you as the listeners to to have to do the the work of the hunt is something that feels odd, but it's worth it in that sense. Once you find it, right. to see it, even if it's even if it's not complete, because as we were describing, it's that tone and it's that setup, but it's not the chronology in the same way. There's some, there's that big twist, there's those big changes, there's some callback, but it's in a, it's in enough of a way that you can you can watch some and get a feel and see if you want to hunt down all the pieces.
1: But definitely binge what you can find. Yep. So our next question is revive, reboot or rest in peace. And this one's a hard one
2: because I'm going to say rest in peace. That's because I think it has had its multiple times in the sun and it, it will continue to, this is a rest in peace, not because it won't be, remade or rebooted but because every time they do it gets a new name because
1: it's powered by the, the, the actors and the characters not by the setup absolutely right this, this is part of a tradition in that sense that goes back for generations of storytelling and movies and TV and has continued since Moonlighting it has had spiritual reboots over and over since nineteen since the nineteen eighties. It will continue to. I don't need to have anybody I certainly don't need to have any revive moonlighting such that let's find out what Maddie Hayes and David Addison are doing in the twenty first century. No, I don't really need that. Don't need it rebooted. I don't need other people playing Maddie Hayes and David Addison in the, as the same characters updated in some way. So you're right. I'd say rest in peace and enjoy this series and the other series that are in that same tradition mm-hmm. <laughs> before and after.
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there's Bones, there's Castle, there's so many other things that have their own take on this initial, you know, two, two magnets it, facing the poles against each other, bounce back and forth. But they're also attracted to each other if one of them would turn around kind of thing. It's got that same sort of energy and I, I'd be fine to see one of them throw in a character named David Hayes at some point, just as a, like, <laughs> a, a wink and nod reference. But they don't have to be connected to that, right. because they can, they can breathe within this style on their own and make it their version, and that's excellent. And in some ways, I'm going to go back to that binge, because if you're out there and you're a person who is trying to write a show like this, trying to write fan fiction, Goodness, there are fan fiction writers that I think should watch some of this, who likes some of those other movies that this is based on. This is worth seeing because it is good fuel to see how, especially those early seasons, how you can do that and what some of the pitfalls to avoid and what some of the positives to highlight. And it's it's a great study piece of how to get into one of these stories that I think should be looked at because it... We can deviate from this too far at some point, and it's not that type of story anymore. But there's something about that type of story that's compelling. So I'm hoping that this could help reinvigorate that if people look for it again.
1: Yep. It is something that it, it will reward study, especially people who are interested in telling that kind of story. And there's definitely room to continue telling that kind of story. Just so let's see new ones, not a reboot of this one. Exactly. Well, I think that wraps it up for uh, for this episode. Thank you very much for downloading and for listening. We really appreciate it. And thank you for supporting uh, the show in any way that you can, whether that's just downloading and listening, if that's uh, leaving us reviews with as many stars as you care to on iTunes, or going to our website and contacting us through our contact page or through Twitter, going to our Patreon where you'll get some additional content if you uh, support us there. Go to the shop that you'll see on our website. Uh, if you like things like t-shirts and coffee mugs and whatnot. But until next time, Ian, where will people find you? I can be found on Twitter as at itemcrafting or on YouTube as Item Crafting and on Twitch as Item Crafting Live. And you'll find me at MatthewFporter.com. You'll also find me on Twitter at buy Matthew Porter. And that uh, website for the podcast that I mentioned is immproject.com. That'll have links to back episodes and our shop and everything else. And you can also find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPCast. And uh, we look forward to um, chatting with you there as well, or on our Discord, which is one of the other many things linked from the website. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch.